Hi, everyone, and a massive welcome to the next episode here on InfoSec Live of the CISO Experience. My name is Simon Linstead, the host and founder of the InfoSec Live community, and I'm super excited to be talking with another of our industry's leaders today. This time, it's Paul Love to share his journey and talk about the challenges and the successes that he's seen in our industry to date. But before we begin, if you're watching this live, please, please do like and subscribe. We want to make these events as interactive as possible. So again, make sure you drop any questions you may have in the chat. And for those who don't know, who are the InfoSec Live community? We're an independent social network community of 3,000 cyber professionals sharing best ideas and practice. And we've been creating content on YouTube now for just under a year. I'm very excited to announce that we have over 2,000 subscribers and over 5,000 hours of content viewed now. So a massive thank you to everyone in our amazing community for your support. And you should, if I get my breath back, also see some new and exciting ways to support the YouTube community. You've got the ability to purchase super stickers in the chat if you want your question bumped up to the top. And there's three tiers of membership allowing you to show your support in any way that you may be able to. But a special thank you to our latest two members, Aaron Lax and KevTech. Your support is very much appreciated. And again, a massive thank you to all of you for engaging. And whether you join or not, being here and engaging with our content is what really matters. And for us to keep bringing you valuable and informative content on the CISO experience, I want to say a big thank you to the support of our existing sponsor, Bramfit Technology Labs, who've made these events possible. There'll be a link to check them out in the description on the channel. But without further ado, just get my breath back. A little bit about our next guest. Next guest is Paul Love, who's the Chief Information Security and Privacy Officer of Co-op Financial Services in the United States. He brings over 25 years in information security, privacy, risk management, financial services and technology experience to the show. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he's held information security positions with Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, Freddie Mac, Ernst & Young, Microsoft, Schlumberger, Ally Financial, Fifth Third Bank and the U.S. Marine Corps. He also holds a master's of, can't get my words out, master's of science in network security, has authored and co-authored nine books on information security in Unix and Linux including the Institute of Internal Auditors Global Technology Audit Guide on Information Security Governance. He's also been the technical editor of 10 books on Linux and Unix, holds multiple certifications in information security, privacy and technology. And I think you will agree this is going to be epic. Let's bring him on. Hi, Paul. Massive welcome. Hi. Wow, that was very impressive. I, I, I Thank you so much for the kind introduction. No, you didn't see me doing this, getting my breath back for the 30 seconds <laughs> when the came on. You've, you've got yeah. such an impressive background, Paul. I mean, I don't think I've done you a service completely with the intro. So before we before we dig in, I suppose, to the Q&A, could you just tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and how you got into the industry? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, by the way, all that stuff that, you know, all those credentials and things... Um, I always look at that as part of my journey for learning because I'm in continuous learning mode. Right. And yeah. um, the way I got started was um, for I'll, I'll date myself a little bit. Um, I had an Atari 65 XE back in the 80s. And, um, you know, I took a class in sixth grade on um, computer programming on an Atari 800. And, you know, I built my first program using spaghetti code. So I, I'm not saying yeah. I'm a coder by any way. I mean, I know how to use go to's, but I know how to make really bad code. Um, but I created some code and then um, that got me interested in security, um, you know, and, and actually my house where I lived as a kid got broken into. Right. And I didn't like that feeling of, you know, somebody violating our space. So my love of computers and then, 
you know, not wanting to see other people um, feel like they had been violated, you know, from a security perspective, really got me fascinated into, got me fascinated with security. So I joined the Marine Corps, um, you know, worked in security there and just continued to build my love for this industry that you, you never know everything. And, you know, it's, it's always, I'm always learning something new. There's always a lot of stuff I don't know about. And that kind of just feeds my curiosity. So, you know, I, I love security and everything about it just because it's such an interesting field. And I hope others are able to, to participate in that as well. Right. It feels like sometimes we have un, unnatural barriers to getting people in the field. Do, do you know, it, you, you hear that a lot. And, and I think there are barriers. It's definitely not barriers that are put in place by the leaders like yourself, though, Paul, because all the conversations we have on this show is all about the importance of, you know, not just certifications, but those transferable skills, those soft skills, all the things that we hear. But when it comes to the kind of recruitment process, and I don't want to steal your thunder because I know you've got an F-Sides podcast coming out on this very topic next week. <laughs> but the, there is some gatekeeping going on. But from being a new entrant into the industry myself, you know, 19 months, I think I've been, been working mm -hmm. in here now. <clears throat> I've never known an industry like it for people being prepared to give back. It's yeah. not no other. Well, and it's and that's the good thing. The unfortunate bad thing is there's artificial barriers put into place, I think, sometimes unintentionally. Um, and it's because sometimes in security, like for instance, I've been in security for a while, right? Since the nineties the professionally and before then, um, you know, amateur. Um, and you know, it didn't seem like there was as many um, requirements to get in the field. Basically, if I was breathing, I was like, hey, you're a Unix admin. You, you might know something about security. You're now our security person, too. Right. It's like, OK, I'll do that. Whereas now, you know, it feels like when I look at job descriptions, there's so many requirements. Um, and, you know, the thing I try to share with um, people and to, you know, like my my one of my sons got into security. Right. It's like, hey, you don't have to have all these fancy credentials. You know, most security people and most CISOs and so forth are just looking for people who are passionate and want to learn about technology. Um, and if you show that you have that passion, right, that's there. Now, some people equate that to certifications or a degree. I actually think the people who uh, some of the smartest people in security that I've worked with have didn't have any type of IT background. One was um, a fine arts major, one of the best security people I've ever met in my life, fine arts major. Um, and then another one was um, majored in orchestra, right, on how to be, you know, uh, you know, it was just amazing. And, you know, and the reason they could do that was because they were able to take abstract concepts and make them um, into, you know, solid physical things that you could execute yeah. on. But, well, this, know, this, is, this leans really heavily onto my normal pet gripe that I talk about mm -hmm. a lot, which is our education system as a whole. And... Yeah. I mean, I, I, met, I mentioned to you before we were live on air, you know, I've got six children. I've got some in different areas, different ages and stages of education. I've got one who's left school. And the one thing that we don't get taught anymore, unless you pay out extortionate private school fees, perhaps, is critical thinking. You know, we're, we're taught yeah. to pass tests, Paul. Yeah, I know. No, I agree with that. And that's why, you know, the people who are passionate, the people who go and do CTFs on their own, and show like, hey, I, you know, uh, you know, while I was working this job in sales, right, I went and, um, you know, did five CTFs. I didn't place, but I learned and I learned more about it. Those are the people I really like um, and the people that I want to, you know, really bring into the field. Because you can teach technical concepts, you can. Um, yeah. really to communicate effectively and passion 
are, you know, it's really hard to teach passion, right? Um, I don't think you can do it and hard to teach the ability to communicate. So I always tell people, take the risk and and try to get into the field, um, you know, even if you don't have a lot of experience, because it's such a great field and there's so many opportunities to learn. There, there is. And I think a lot of the negativity we see that I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit, mm-hmm. because you hit the nail on the head with the word passion. You need a passion to be in this industry. And I've said this a hundred mm-hmm. times before, there are far easier ways to make money than the cybersecurity <laughs> industry. If money is what you want, but yeah, you have to have that inbuilt drive and curiosity and passion for the, for the space, I think to succeed in it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the negative comments you see perhaps online are from people who've maybe paid for a boot camp, haven't quite got the hundred grand a year job in the six weeks that they were hoping for and decided to badmouth the industry. I've seen loads of people on a positive side, break into the industry with very little experience. One guy last year in his fifties, ran barbershops for 20 years, you know, good business acumen. He came in at a fairly high-level GRC position, um, consultancy advisory position, after doing 12 months of study because he brought, we had all those skills to transition over with him, which were, as you rightly said, those soft skills that are so important. There, There is a, a question from Rachel here. I mean, we've touched on it a little bit, but I'll bring it up in case there's anything else you want to add, Paul. Why is it so difficult to get a cybersecurity role despite having experience and certifications? I think two parts to it. Um, one is, I'll, I'll talk to the easier part, is that even with a bunch of certifications and um, experience, if you're not able to tell the story of what what you can bring to an organization in your resume, which, you know, we, uh, Simon, thanks for mentioning our podcast in a couple of weeks, uh, because that is what one of the things we talk about is telling the story. If your resume doesn't tell the story and is just a list of um, bullet points, it's very hard to distinguish yourself from other people. So I think that's one thing is being able to effectively tell the story of who you are and what you bring um, is really important. And resumes, unfortunately, are the only way to do that for most people. So the other way is to network um, and reach out to CISOs. I had somebody, um, a very um, junior person, actually just in college, reach out to me and say, hey, uh, I'm, you know, I'm looking to connect on LinkedIn so that when I post stuff, it gets um, you know, groups of people, you know, do you mind? And yeah. they wrote a personal note to me saying, hey, you know, I, I appreciate you can do that. I did that, right? It's because I want to help people and, and anybody listening today, feel free to to link in to me. Um, because you. I want to help I'm going to use this so, opportunity to get your profile. Here we go. Sorry, Paul. Carry oh, on. yeah. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm not trying to get more connections, but just as an no. example of a great way, because the other thing I think is um, it's the part that we put on ourselves. So let me tell you. So, you know, you mentioned my my qualifications, right? Theoretically, my qualifications, the certifications and so forth. Like yeah. I have, I think I have like 20 something certifications um, and, and a master's degree. But when I walk into a room, I sometimes feel like I don't ha- I'm not qualified enough to talk about stuff. Right. So imposter syndrome. Right. And even yeah. my, um, you know, being in the field so long. I walk in with imposter syndrome sometimes and feel like, oh, can I really talk about Active Directory? I don't really know a lot. But now I'm much more confident in myself because I've been in the field that I know I don't have to know everything. I just have to know no. how to ask questions. And and I actually, you know, tell people, ask. I actually ask them like I'm, you know, I pretend like I know nothing. Now, the reason I say that is because I think when people are applying, they may they may not apply for all the roles that um, they might be great at, right? And take that risk 
Um, sorry, I got some dogs in the background. I think everyone who right. lived through COVID. Yeah, it's normally my children <laughs> screaming, Paul. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, you know, I think it's limitations we place on ourselves. So if you see a role, go for it. What's the worst that can happen? You're not you're not closing a door because I there's people I've talked to um, in the past who, you know, they were just great. They're passionate. They want to do it. But they said, I don't have enough certifications. Right. Like I need to get security plus or I need to go finish my master's. And I tell the person, no, don't worry about that. Just go apply. And you know what? Even if you're applying, um, go go post stuff on LinkedIn. Your voice matters. Even if all you're yeah. doing is saying, hey, I applied for a job or hey, what's this mean in security? Like get your voice out there because hearing new voices and asking questions is really important. And that exposes you to a larger group of people and make and creates opportunities um, for you. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, the answer to that question is two things, right? We got to improve on the security side, the leadership side. But the other one is, yeah. if you're interested in it, go for it. Um, take the risk. That's how I got a couple of my jobs is I, was, I applied to one job. I was like, there's zero chance I'm going to get this, zero. Um, and I got in and they hired me immediately. I got up all the way to the corporate vice president who they said never happens on the same day. And, you know, they basically hired me that day. Um, and I was totally shocked because I'm like, I'm not qualified for this. So give it a try. I think um, I, I completely agree with that. And I think it was Rachel who asked the question. Rachel, based on what Paul's just said, I read a research paper about two months ago about gender biased, gender bias when applying for jobs. And I don't oh, know if you've read anything, read anything similar, Paul, but us cocky, arrogant men are sometimes more likely to apply for a job where we think we've only got 50% of the skills asked for, whereas females tend to be more honest about it and think, well, there's no way unless I've got 70% of what they're asking for that there that I'm going to apply for the job. So again, I don't think it is just a gender bias, but it could be a personality bias as well. You know, especially if you've been sending out resume after resume, had rejection after rejection, you get to the point where you're losing your confidence. It's, it's important to get that back, isn't it, Paul? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I will say I did see the same study. That's, you know, and part of the reason why I'm in the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Council, one of the leaders in our organization is because I want to see what what can I do to help. Right. And if you're a security leader and you're not part of your diversity um, you know, program, I would say get in there immediately because you're going to hear a lot of different perspectives that helps you be a better leader and bring in um, better security people with more diversity and thinking because you really need that um, in security. But the confidence it's, thing. It's not, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go on, Paul. No, go, you go. I was going to say the confidence thing. I totally had that happen to me, by the way, for everyone on this. Um, I was at a very high profile job, very, very high profile, um, where everything I did was very visible, you know, even to the public. And um, we were succeeding in all of our um, objectives. But I was miserable, and um, it, and it's not because it was because I did not fit with the culture of the organization. The organization was great; it was just not a good cultural fit for me. And that doesn't make them yeah. bad or me bad. It just wasn't a good no. fit. It got to the point where I was like, I need to leave the security field. Um, I'm not. I'm not a good leader. I'm not good at security. Guy, I, I'm miserable. Right. Luckily, I went and took a job that was a little bit lower, less stressful right after that one and it rebuilt up like okay wait that was just a cultural fit issue that wasn't because i'm a bad security person and you know i rebuilt and, and accelerated my career from there so you're going to have those instances um you just have to know that it's probably not you it's probably an, an aspect of the environment or so forth um that you you need to consider and really evaluate 
Yeah, I completely agree. And and going back to your your point there, um, Rachel, I think it was Rachel, um, Scott from Click Armor, you've you've made a point about you know using LinkedIn perhaps to demonstrate what you've learned. If you can tell stories that particularly highlight your understanding of risk terminology, such as threats, assets, and vulnerabilities, you'll get noticed. And I think completely agree, Scott. And also, if you can demonstrate, you, you see a lot on LinkedIn of people posting. I've passed, you know, sec plus, passed net plus, or I'm top 3%, try hack me or whatever it might be. Whilst that's amazing, I don't actually think recruiters and employers really care. What? Well, yeah. I'm being brutally honest here. What they want to see is what you've learned and how you can apply that to the role that you're looking for. Do you think? Yeah. yeah and, and, and posting, you know, things like that is great. Like, hey, I got the top 2% or I would say even just post, hey, just completed a, a CTF. Um, and I didn't realize you could do this, right? And just talking about your experience, the more visibility you get out there, the better. Um, and the yeah. more that, um, you know, you show the humility, right? Because uh, I think I saw a comment earlier about humility, 100% agree, right? Like when you were describing my, you know, at the beginning, I was like, oh, you know, because, you know, you'll find most, a lot of, a lot of the, you know, CISOs that are in security people that are doing the day-to-day are tend to be um, very humble, right? And I know by yes. saying that I'm not being humble, but, you know, they tend to be very mm-hmm. humble. But, you know, the security stars, if, if you're trying to compare yourself to somebody who's listed as a security star, right, air quote, um, or, you know, one of the talking heads of security, don't because, you know, they're, they're just people too. Um, and it takes all kinds of people to work in the field and don't feel like you need to compare yourself to anybody. Cause you know, early in my career, somebody gave me a very good piece of advice. Um, I walked into my manager's office said, I need to be, I was a, I wasn't a vice president at that point. And I said, I need to be a vice president. They're like, okay. Um, so if we promoted you to vice president, what next? I said, well, then I'd need to be an SVP because like a senior vice president. He's like, okay, what's after that? <laughs> Oh, wait a minute. I am I am focused on the wrong thing. And then that totally changed my life. And I was like, wait a minute, I actually need to think about what do I want to do? What am I passionate about? And that's when I stopped worrying about it. And that's when really weirdly my career got better. Right. I I started to get the progression um, that I needed. So. I'm, I'm, I've got this smug smile on my face because it's like you're describing my journey in different terms there. <laughs> I mean, I, I was fo- on, on different focuses on different things, but it was shiny things and money for me. And yeah. Yeah. I, I achieved all that, you know, and I was yeah. still absolutely miserable. And I was working in, in an industry that I had no interest in helping rich people get richer, you know, no, no real satisfaction. And it wasn't until I mean, I wanted to become a technical tester in the industry. Mm-hmm. Clearly, if I'd have done what I'm telling everyone I speak to now to do first, which is have a look at your own personality, look at your strengths before you start going in. However, what I've ended up finding out I really enjoy doing is this. It's, yeah. you know, getting the chance to speak to people like yourself and learn from your experiences and journeys. And going back to the humbleness, you think I've been doing cold outreach to get people like yourself on this show. And cold outreach on LinkedIn is something I've never done before and always said that I wouldn't. <laughs> and you, you yeah. look at kind of conversion rates. Well, we've got a 50 percent conversion rate from who I've sent out invites to to come back. That is a reflection of how humble people are in the industry. Yeah. And, and plus, you know, your, your messaging resonated because it was personal, right? It was like, Hey, let's chat. Like, and, you know, and, and that's how I would recommend that if you want to break into the field, reach out to the manager and to an organization that you're interested in and just say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm just learning the field. Um, you know, I've done a couple CTFs. Um, I'd love to chat and, and, you know, and just chat with them. Like, Hey, what was your journey and have a, a human conversation with them. Um, and then that's going to open a lot of doors for you. 
It is. And I think going back to what you said before about not comparing yourself to anyone else, mm -hmm. there's, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some people, especially leadership positions in the industry who've been in tech for like 20, 25 years, and it's become, I suppose, a natural progression. But everyone else I speak to who hasn't been in the industry that long has got completely different backgrounds. And there was a question that came up earlier. Where is that? Because it relates to your, your service. Let me see if I can find that. It's me trying to do two things at once here. Scrolling on the left. I can't do it, so I'm glad that you're able to do it. <laughs> it's um, it's Yuri. Thank you very much. Service in U.S. Marine Corps. Did it give you some push to become a CISO or not? Good question. Um, you know, at first it did, right? And that was because the military, any military, is very hierarchical, and it's about your title, right? That you, the more title you have, the more um, influence you have in an organization. And I always yeah. realized that I wanted to be able to influence the direction of an organization. So when I was in the Marine Corps, I thought, okay, to do that, I have to have a SVP title, right? A senior yeah. vice president title or some type of title to be influential in an organization. And that kind of, um, that followed me until I had that conversation I just mentioned with that manager who said, well, Paul, what's next, right? It's like, oh, you know, I can influence organizationally without having a fancy title. And, you know, that kind of shook me out of the, I have to have the CISO title. And then eventually I became a CISO because, you know, I, I wasn't chasing it as hard. I was really enjoying the journey and, and yeah. showing my passion. And it just, it, and now I applied for a CISO role. Don't get me wrong. It's not like someone just said, Hey, well, you know, you're going to be a CISO, but you know, it finally just kind of made sense. Like, oh, okay. The next step is to influence, but you know, going back to your comparison thing, wherever you are in your journey in security is is okay to be there, right? Because I look, sometimes I look at the LinkedIn like, oh, this person got an award or this person is now the, the CISO of a top 50, um, you know, top a fortune 50 company and so forth. And I look at it and I, I'm like, oh, am I, am I behind? Am I bad? No, like, you just, you just haven't paid for the awards, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, and I actually saw a LinkedIn post, but it's like, I can, it's natural to compare yourself. That's why I don't like social media as much, but yeah. you know, I compared myself and I, I get down a little bit. Then I think, wait a minute, am I happy with what I'm doing? I love my job. I love the company I work with. It's like, so what, what am I worried about? Right. So, you know, don't comparing yourself to others is just, you know, definitely the, the sooner, the sooner you work out in your life that it's a fool's game worrying about what other people think of you all the time, the happier you yeah. will be, Paul, I think is Absolutely. my comment there. Um, just I just want to dive in the, the chat. I hope I did. Yeah. Yeah, you did. Thank you. Just want to jump okay. in the chat quickly just to say um, hi to Chris Foulon. Thanks for, for jumping in, Chris. Really appreciate it. Jonathan Kipping, it seems like his um, stories, your stories resonated with him quite a lot. We've got Nika in the audience as well. Nika is part of our scholarship cohort. We've got seven community members all being put through a fully paid scholarship at the moment, Paul. Um, we launched it three weeks ago and we're building out bespoke pathways for each one. So we've spent a bit of time on personality assessment. Last week we had a CISO focus with some CISOs coming in for chats. This week we've got some more CISOs and some red team members coming in before, before the cohorts start to try and make the mind up on what direction of career they want to go in. And Nika put, I always wonder at what point would I be good enough to take a cybersecurity role? Nika, you're one of the most passionate individuals I've met in my last two years in the industry. So I would say, pretty much today. now really back to yeah, that today yeah today yeah. and we've, we've got a question here from deloney v8 motorsports miss my v8 any advice on ways to assess risk and or how to prioritize which vulnerabilities to address first um so that's a very very big question so i'm going to answer it generically it but not corporately right like i don't want to give you a, yeah. a, a non-answer so 
you know, the the way that I assess risk is I create our requirements, our information security standards, and then I pull from those requirements and then pull throughout the organization and say, hey, are you application A, are you meeting the requirements that are applicable to you? Application B, right? And so for infrastructure, Unix systems, are you meeting the requirements? I gather all that data together, determine organizationally, are we meeting the, the um, information security standards, which are the codified version of our risk tolerance, right? Because if your organization said, are, you know, hey, we want to be compliant with all laws and protect our company, we pull a bunch of different regulations and so forth. But being compliant isn't being secure. So I'm not saying that either, right? You have to add some things um, in there. Um, so that's well, kind of a few, a few caveats here, Paul, I think. Yeah, well, so. I'm going to throw, yeah, because, <laughs> you know, you have to contextualize everything, um, you know, otherwise it could be mis misunderstood. But Absolutely. that's how to understand to assess the risk. Now, the prioritization, um, you know, it really depends on the organization and how you're set up. The easiest way, um, and I know someone's going to come back and say, Paul, that you didn't think about X, Y, Z. So please forgive me. I'm, I'm answering very generically. But, you know, I always look at it and say, when I talk to people, especially when I'm new in an organization, it's like, okay, tell me about all the vulnerabilities that could be exploited outside of our organization, right? What has the biggest, what has the biggest attack surface? Like what, what could um, the most people attack us from? And then I say, okay, those are the things we need to address first. Or actually I say, you know, um, what's exposed outside and how's it rated, right? Was it critical, high, medium, or low? And does it have confidential information like personally identifiable information, credit card, health information, whatnot? I say, that's our highest priority stuff we need to fix. Then I go to the next layer, which, okay, externally facing, but doesn't have all that stuff in it, right? And then you go into the internal systems and, and so forth. So not a great answer because there's multiple ways to do it. But if you're looking for what's the very basic way to do it, you know, the outside stuff, because that's that's where the most people could attack you um, with, you know, private personal information that's rated. You can use CVE, whatever you yeah. want. If you're just starting out, because I'm a big fan of um, keeping it simple. Um, you don't have to have massive mathematical formulas. Just if that if starting somewhere, even if you start with 10 percent of where you want to be, that's 10% better than where you were, right? So get Absolutely. started and do that. And that action orientation, by the way, is what CISOs, in my opinion, love, is people who are action-oriented, who say, let's solve the problem, but I'm going to incrementally solve it instead of waiting a year to solve everything and then having to redesign it. So I didn't you, answer you the question. People... Hope, yeah. I think I think you answered it answered it very diplomatically and very well, Paul. <laughs> do, you, right. do you look for people who are going to question as well? So oh, I don't absolutely. mean question in an awkward way, but you know, no, no. I think we, we had a had a guest on the other day and we were talking about. Oh no, it wasn't. It was with um with our cohort. We had a CISO in who was trying to manage their expectations on the type of work they could get first, and he was mm -hmm. talking about different colors of work. I think he was talking about red work, green work, and gold work. I think was the terminology. Oh, that sounds red like work a model, right? Like green. Yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah, the, the red work was you know menial, repetitive tasks that you don't really understand what value they're doing at all. And he was mm -hmm. saying how important it is to know why you're doing something and make sure that you understand the value in what you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, the the way I would look at that, there's two two questions you had in there. The first one is about do I do I look for people who challenge me? Absolutely. And if you are working for somebody who doesn't want you to challenge, get out, leave, because yeah. you're not going to grow as a person and you're not going to achieve really anything in your career. Um, you know, for instance, I hire people that actively argue with me. Um, now, there has to be like a disagree and commit point. But, um, you know, one of the people I hired was a person who failed me on an audit. 
um, and it was an auditor of mine and, um, you know, failed me, you know, failed me on an audit, wrote me all kinds of audit findings, uh, you know, before I left the organization. We ended up becoming good friends. He, be, he was one of the best men at my um, wedding. I had two. Uh, he became my, one of my best uh, men, became one of my best friends, too. Um, and I hired him at two other companies because he would go and um, argue effectively and ensure that the art. And when I say argue, like if I'm about to walk into um, a meeting and say, um, you know, all of our systems are X. Right. And he and he comes and says, well, Paul, it actually you're not giving the full story. All of our systems are X and Y. That was a great thing because he he saved me from, you know, creating a problem for myself. And, yeah. you know, I always look for people who um, challenge me because I'd rather have them challenge me than me, you know, make a mistake somewhere. So that's that's the first um, part. Now, the second the second part of your question. Sorry, what was the second? I, I lost it there. You can't you can't expect me to remember what that was. <laughs> oh, gosh, I, I, I'm trying to remember, too. Now. Um, but it was really good. But you know, basically, um, you know, hire people that disagree with you and, and, you know, and and as a leader, you have to get rid of your, your thinking that you're always going to be right or that you always know everything. Yeah. I think um, I totally agree with that. Splodge, you're spot on. I'm going to, I was then about to bring your comments up actually, because this is a bit of motivation for people who are trying to break in. Splodge said, I'd like to encourage people out there. I took a job with a small company as tech support for software and, I've now been entered into the cybersecurity team and also product ownership. So sometimes it's just getting that foot on the ladder, isn't it? I think, Paul. Yeah. yeah and that's how it started for me. I mean, I'm, when I got out of the Marine Corps, my first job was with a company. I was a, a Unix system administrator. And then they said, we need somebody to kind of centralize and think about security. I popped in there and, and now look, I'm, I'm, you know, I've built a career out of that. Um, so. I think that the one the one thing I'd say when it comes down to people, especially in teams, and I, and I go back to when I used to run run a lot of meetings back in the day when I had staff, and it was always the quietest person in the room yeah. who I'd want to know what they'd been thinking at the end. The person who gets overlooked, they tend to be the ones who give you the most valuable insights. And I think <clears throat> there's a great book actually by Christian Espinosa, um, another CISO, called The Smartest Person in the Room. And I think as soon as you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, aren't you, Paul? Oh, yeah. Let me just say that if you're a CISO. And well, but that's never happened to me. Oh, yeah, no. If everyone's agreeing with you, you should be very scared, right? Because that means yeah. either they're, they don't feel comfortable telling you what's going on um, or they don't care, right? And, you know, I, if, I always assume I don't know as much as the other people in the room. And if, again, if everyone's agreeing with me, I really get worried. Yeah, either, mean, either means they're not listening. Or they don't yeah. care. Yeah, yeah. One, one of the two. Um, question here from Scott. Um, do you find tabletop exercises to be valuable for incident response? If so, can you share any examples? Good question, Scott. Yeah, no. Um, for me, absolutely. Because, um, you know, the you and this is a kind of a military thing, or at least I, I took it from the military, is the more you practice, um, the better you become. You want your activities to be muscle memory. So for incident response... Um, we do tabletops very frequently because we want to, people, if we take away the unknown, it makes it just very normal on how we're going to react to incidents because incidents are very highly stressful situations. So, yeah. you know, going through this, the, the thing saying, you know, every time we'll go in and I'll say, OK, where do you find the documentation? And if somebody's like, oh, I don't remember, I don't I don't get mad at them because the tabletop is where you want to find that stuff. Right. It's like, OK, great. Well, you know. Let's go and make sure that, you know, here's where you go do it. And if they forget multiple times, it's like, okay, right, we're going to get it there. And what, you know, how do we make it better? 
Um, and, you know, tabletops are exceptionally important. I would, I would actually recommend you um, doing tabletops on your incident response um, at least monthly, right? And I've had instances where I did it weekly just to build, remove the unknown, especially when you're delegating. Um, because yeah. I tell my team, when you're in the room, you're the CISO, right? You have to behave like a CISO if I'm not there because you, you represent the team and you have that authority to make decisions. So I need to remove the fear from making decisions and in incident response. But the, my team also has to know that even if they if they make the wrong decision, as long as it was ethical, um, you know, I'm not going to come down on them. Right. Because I always tell my team, if you make a decision, I disagree with you. I'm going to back you up. We may talk about it later and say, hey, you know, I disagree. I think we should have gone this route. I won't do it in front of others. But if you do it with the best intentions of the organization, great, because you're there to protect the organization, not the CISO. Right. And if you yeah. always think about that, I'm, I'm always going to support your decision making. That's a, that's, a, that's a great point. Just building out from that, then um, we see a lot in this industry of finger pointing the end users, don't we? Oh, you yeah. Know, yeah. It's that end users fault. And then and then that that brings me on to staff awareness training and the disasters mm -hmm. that we see of that being implemented some sometimes. And you made a great point about, you know, not publicly shaming or pulling people up on it at the time but it seems to be the way a lot of company deal with their staff awareness training for cybersecurity is naming and shaming those who don't do very well which surely isn't the best approach is it yeah i mean fear will motivate people to a certain point um but really understanding is will motivate them far longer with less effort so when we build our security awareness program now to be clear you have to have some consequences if someone clicks on every single phishing email that comes through right you have to have something but in general, what I focus our security awareness programs on are, hey, I and I tell my team is let's make this about them and protecting their families. Let's show them, you know, how to protect their family from phishing. Give them tips on how to, you know, make sure they're, um, you know, they're not connecting to bad Wi-Fi. Right. Really make it personal, and then come in and say, oh, and by the way, this also helps the company. Um, and here's how you can help the company. So I make it about them protecting themselves and their family, and then expand it to the company. And I find it really sticks um, when when you take that approach, because now it becomes very personal. And I've had people come to me and say, Paul, um, you know, I my my grandmother um, was looking at an email. She she now knows I'm the security person in our family. And I told her not to click it. I appreciate the program you created. It's like that's the best thing I could ever hear. Right. Because now I know they're bringing that behavior into work, too. I love it. Yeah. My um my wife has become the go-to cybersecurity expert on the school playground pool for very similar, yeah. Yeah. very I mean, similar. It yeah. is, yeah. yeah. So pe people asking questions about dodgy text mess text messages they get through, and someone got their phone hacked through Instagram, and it's all very exciting on the school playground. I just want to jump in the chat really quickly. Um, Carrie mm -hmm. Cheerson is in the house. Carrie has passed everyone his A plus first module exam today. So I just want to take a second, Carrie. Well done, because oh. I know this has been this has been a hard road for you. You've had lots of complicating factors going on in your life, like we all do, but you've knuckled down and you've passed that exam today. So massive, massive congratulations to you, Kerry. Really, really well done. And right, back to the questions. We've got a couple in there. Yuri, you've got another good one. Thanks for tuning in again, Yuri. When you hire a person, what are the top three things you want to see in a candidate? Um, passion. Right. First of all, and right. And let me give you let me tell you how I look for that so that that's more than just a word. Right. So, yes, please. Um, and I'll tell you those top three things. So passion is the first one. And I look for that by 
you know, what do you, how did you get in the field? What do you do outside of the required stuff? Like, what are you doing on your own to learn? So for instance, if you're doing CTFs on your own, or, hey, I, I read a book on um, hacking and here's what I got out of it, right? Or, you know, if you're, if you have a bunch of LinkedIn posts that says, hey, here's, you know, here's my journey in security. Right now I'm seeing that you're passionate about security and it's not just a job. Um, the second thing I would look for is your ability to solve problems in an incremental way. Um, right. So, and I did this early in my career and I look back and say, like, oh, I wish I could have not done this. But, you know, when I would go work on a problem, I'd be so focused on trying to impress my leaders that I would create this big, massive solution. By the time I presented it to them, they look at me like, what are you talking about? And it would be like, okay, a, a year has passed, Paul. And your solution makes no sense because of this, this, and this has changed. So I felt stupid, right? So, you know, being able to chunk a problem and very quickly say, okay, you know what? Let me use a, a configuration management database, which is a fancy name for an inventory of all your systems, right? So if someone says you need to have a configuration management database, e.g. an inventory of all your systems, you know, how would you approach that? Well, some people would go through and say, okay, I need to go do a big scan of the network. I need to do X, Y, Z, Z, you know, all these things. And I would just say, just, you know, do a simple in-map scan, right? Yeah. And document that. And there's your, that's the start, right? And that's where you start. You Even if you, if you're in a small org, go write down on a piece of, um, you know, of printer paper. Hey, these are the six systems we have in the operating system. That's a great start because now I'm seeing, okay, this person can incrementally think and solve a problem and expand and make it better. So that's the second thing. And that would be an example of what I would ask or kind of what I would look for. Um, the third thing is to be able to communicate a story effectively and contextualize. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, and again, these are all things that I've had problems with in my career um, that I've, you know, had, I've, you know, done wrong and I wish I could go back, but um, you know, being able to tell that story effectively. So for instance, if I say, oh, we have 10,000 vulnerabilities, um, right. That, you know, that sounds bad, but I'm not really telling you the story, right? So what's the story? Well, the story could be, you know, we have 10,000 vulnerabilities, but that's across 5,000 systems and they're all low rated. Um, so, you know, it's, and now that you've given me that additional information, it's not as big of a deal, right. As opposed to, if you just say that number, it could be and the analogy I use with my team is um, it's like, and I published something on LinkedIn about this not long ago is about contextualization is yelling fire without context doesn't really tell you anything, right? So if the fire's in the fireplace, okay, great. That's where it's supposed to be. If it's on the couch, that's a problem, right? So you definitely go solve that, you know, and, and you know, being able to tell that that story is super important. Absolutely. I was just sorry, my, my eye just got um, dragged up to the chat there. I see that Jennifer's dropped in. Hey, Jennifer, thanks for tuning in. Does anyone know of any entry level cybersecurity internships or positions available? The quick answer off the top of my head is no. However, if you come along and join the InfoSec Live community, if you haven't already, I will drop the invite in the chat. It's a free community. And I know for a fact over the next week or two, there are going to be some new positions being added in there for the UK and the US. And I know that some of them are entry level positions. So have a look at that. And also, actually, saying that I don't know of anyone, Valor Cybersecurity in, I believe they're based in Norfolk, Virginia. I think the last time I looked, they were looking 
for an intern in the cybersecurity area. So perhaps have a reach out to them. Greg Tomchik is the CEO and Jeff Fields is the COO, Jennifer. So maybe give them a go. Um, I noticed that- Jennifer, maybe a tip, if you don't mind. Please. No, please. Yeah, what, Jennifer, what I would say is, um, you know, that's great that you're asking and you're attending things like that. That's that's exactly what you want to be doing. Um, the other thing I'd say is get on social media networks. And I'm going to say LinkedIn because it's the easiest, but there's others out there. Right. Get on LinkedIn. And, and first of all, try to connect to as, as many people as you can, even if it's just a connection. You don't have to have a, a long you know, conversation. Just say, hey, I'm new to the field. I want to break into the field. I'm looking to you know, connect to other security professionals. Can I link into you? Right. And you'll see that you'll get a lot of yeses. So once you do that, that amplifies your voice. Right. So when you post things now, it's not just seen by your direct connections, but it's often seen by their connections. Right. So I have, you know, thousands of connections um, because I've been in for 20 years on LinkedIn. You know, now all of my connections are going to see that. Now you can start to post things, but also you can post questions because we're all looking for interns um, at certain points of the year. Um, Maybe right now is not the time. But, you know, if you put out there after you connect to a group of people, say, hey, uh, please consider me for internships. Here's here's kind of what I love to do. I've been doing five CTFs every month. And X and Y, a couple little notes about yourself, you're you'll probably get a lot of feedback and a lot of people reaching out to you versus you having to go and apply. Yeah, I completely agree. Kerry, while you're while you're jumping back in there, I think I just saw that you might have just bought a couple of books to learn Linux. Paul, seeing as you've written nine or ten, any suggestions on books? For <laughs> well, Kerry? I'm not going to say mine are older. Yeah, I wrote mine in the late '90s. Um, so you know, if you you know, a couple of them, I I think were good. But um, you know, it's uh, you don't go. By the way, so writing the books sounds um, it's not glamorous, right? You don't go writing books for money. Um, the whole no. reason actually that I did it was because it forced me to really hone my craft and really make sure that I understood the concepts I was discussing. And I just like helping people. And, you know, so, you know, buy any any book you want. Um, but, you know, um, there's there's a couple out there, you know, that I know that that are good. So I'm not going to... I have, I have got... Um, I've got a copy kicking around here of Linux for Dummies, Carrie. If that's not offensive, I will put that in the post <laughs> for you, my friend. I'm more than happy to help with that. And I'm going to drop this link in because we've ended up focusing on um, people breaking into the industry and the hiring practice when we weren't really going to talk about that all show. However, next week, if you check this link out, fsides.com, this is Paul and Jason Loomis's podcast. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Yep. And I yep. believe, do you want to tell the audience a bit about what you're releasing next week? Yeah. So we're actually talking to a recruiter um, about how to tell the story. And, you know, the things we're talking about here is, Tell the story, um, you know, asking them what makes a good recruiter, because, by the way, you shouldn't feel like um, your relationship with the recruiter is they have all the power. Right. And no good recruiter is going to treat you like that. Unfortunately, we all we all face that um, sometimes. But the recruiter is working for you. So if the recruiter is not, um, you know, communicating with you effectively, not communicating on your timeline, go find another recruiter. Right. It's almost like buying a home. Right. If you're if, if the person selling you your home, you know, coordinating is not your realtor is not um, communicating with you. You're not going to keep using them. You're going to go with somebody else. So treat your recruiters the same way. So that's we're really talking about the what do recruiters look for? What are some good resumes that he has seen? Just a really good conversation about helping people tell the story and break into the field. Let me let me spin this one round then. Um, what does a good recruiter look like? 
Well, so in my experience, a good recruiter is one who is will keep a relationship with you over the years. So how do you do that when you're first starting out? Well, you, you can't, right? But the thing I would say is the first things to look for are, are they communicating with you? Are they really, did they spend time to try to understand what you care about and what your resume is about? Um, or are they just copy and pasting your resume and throwing it out and doing the shotgun approach of giving it to everyone in the world? Yeah, you could do that just as easily. Now you just it will them. it will fail just as easily for you as oh, it will yeah. for them. Yeah. Well, now you've just introduced somebody else who wants to get money, you know, for referring you when you could have just done it and saved it because sometimes the companies don't want to pay that, right? So, yeah. you know, if that's what if that's what they're doing, that's that's not a good recruiter. A good recruiter is one who will spend time with you, talk to you, work through like, hey, what are you trying to accomplish? Okay, here's five roles. What do you think? Right? Like, have conversations with you, like almost like a mentor would. Um, yeah, and, and spend the time. And, and I think it's Im it's important for them to understand the roles that they're trying to get filled as well. And I think, oh from yeah, what, from what I've seen with some, <clears throat> there doesn't seem to be a terribly great or deep level of understanding of what the role actually entails. So mm -hmm. you've got the problem of being given a list of long qualifications to perhaps a recruiter who has no previous experience in cybersecurity apart from a couple of conferences and a few buzzwords. Then trying to match people up with roles, it seems to be. <sighs> That's a pet peeve, by the way, because I get I get people um, link sending me LinkedIn messages. This is why I don't reply to all LinkedIn messages. So if you're if you're linking into me here, just mention that it was from the CISO experience. But I get a ton of messages where people are saying, "Hey, we're you know we we have a um, operations manager role for you, or we have a, a SOC analyst." Um, it's like, well, did you actually look at my resume and see that that's not the career level I'm at right now? That you, you don't want to pay for me being a SOC analyst. So well, this, this you know, is just poor marketing though, isn't it? It's poor marketing. Yeah. And, and you think I get approached every day by companies with their, you know, sales outreach on LinkedIn, mostly asking me if I want help with cybersecurity. And yeah. all it takes is a quick look at the profile that will probably tell you the answer is going to be a no, because I've got people that I know. So what a waste of time from their point of view as well. Yeah. And unfortunately the, um, you know, technology only makes a bad process bad faster, um, you know, and I if they have that. a bad process for getting information out and just hitting as many people as possible, technology is going to accelerate the badness. So, you know, I, I never pay attention to those because, you know, one, I love my job. I'm not looking for anything, but it's like yeah. if you're doing this to me. Right. How many people are you sending it to that don't have experience in the field and don't realize that this is a bad recruiter? This is this is not what the, the level of service you should expect in our field. I think the comment, the comment I love the most from you was um, the recruiter should be like a mentor. And I yeah. think that's such a great way to put it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's what I look for. There's recruiters that I talked to for 20 years. And, um, you know, and, and the even the ones I just meet, we go have a conversation right before I got this job. I had a great conversation with the recruiter. We talked for a bit. I explained what I was looking for. They understood what I was looking for and said, yeah, this seems like a good match. And that was a, a great, a great conversation yeah absolutely carrie's just said he's googled a list of your book your books paul to look at thanks carrie let me know how you oh, get so... <laughs> yeah well thank oh, you I old appreciate old ones are the best old ones are the best paul yeah so look we've There's got, we've got about, about five minutes left i'm going to ask you one question quite a generic one and that is what do you see as the biggest challenge for our industry in the next five years if you can nail down one that is if not multiples fine <laughs> As an industry, um, yeah. I would say uh, diversity, 
we need more diversity in our field. Um, and diversity only amplifies the, you know, the, your creativity. And I'm a strong advocate. Now, earlier in my career, I wasn't, right? I didn't think it was important. I didn't understand it. And luckily, I grew into a, a better person, I think, where I yeah. started to see, especially when I joined the Marine Corps and saw, hey, diversity, different types of thinking are going to bring in people or bring in thoughts that you may never have considered. And, and this, this is the point, people, Paul. This is the point. You just said it there. Diversity of thought, which yes. can mean diversity of race, color, creed, Absolutely. sexuality, and all these. But that isn't yeah. what diversity really means, is it? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's diversity in, in all aspects. So a lot of some of it's based off of, you know, the, the physical aspects, right? Your race, so forth. Some of it, um, the non-physical. And I would just say it's it's so much better for us as a field when we have diverse thinkers, some of the best security leaders, one who's my mentor is a, a woman. And she's like, and she didn't come from a um, security background. And she's the orchestral, right? The the conductor. Yeah. And like the most amazing leader, but I hear about the journey she had to go through and how horrible it was just because she was a woman. And it's like, well, you know, we have to move past that and have to make diversity part of what we do and bring in, you know, people who think differently because the attackers think differently. Yeah. And if we are all thinking the same way or we all look the same or have the same experiences, the attackers are going to just use a different route that we hadn't thought of. So I would say diversity. In, and that's why I care so much about DE&I at our company. And I'm part of the, the leader because I want to make sure I'm bringing in diverse people. I think it's, it's super important. And the, the next question, then I'll, I'll spin another one from in the chat from Yuri, a very important one. <laughs> How do you rest from the job or do you rest from the job? Um, well, I do. Um, I collect coins and I work out and, you know, do stuff at home. But, you know, the thing that I find is um, luckily I chose a job that I really love. So for me, the best rest, the best vacation is when I'm in training. Um, right now I'm doing an OSCP, Offensive Security Certified oh. Professional, right? The pen tester. I'm, I'm, yeah. doing, I'm doing a class. I don't know if I'm going to get the certification. I don't know if I'm good enough. Um, I wasn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, you know, it's, to me, it's interesting because if, um, I'm always continuous learning. So for me, to be able to learn, it really um, allows me to do the fun stuff, why I got into security and, you know, doing training. But other than that, you do have to have things outside. So I have my family and, and things like that. But, you know, if you love what you do, it's never feels like a job. I just love everything about security. Even the bad days are like, hey, you know, I, this is still fun. That's when, that's when you learn the most. Now, going back to the important thing I picked up on there, are we talking just U.S. coins or is it coins in general? Oh, all coins. I love okay. actually I love old medieval coins, um, especially from the um, U.K. Do you um, know? So I collect, oh, I have you, gold nobles. And um, you need you to know. come to our house. So we live oh. um, we live in a, on top of an old Saxon village. So we live oh. in East. Actually, England. my wife lived in London for three years or for I'm sorry, six months, not three years, <laughs> um, six months. And, um, you know, we just were out there a couple of years ago. We're going to go back. We'll have to connect because I was Definitely. looking for coin shops while I was out there. It's like, oh, I need to buy some coins. So. Well, I have, I'll speak to you afterwards because um, I've actually got loads of coins that I've just found going through my mum's stuff. So I'll speak to you about them. But what we've also got is an 1,100-year-old church down the road from us oh, and wow. loads of previous settlements. So I'm going to invest in a metal detector at some oh, point. Oh, my God. I know it's exciting. Isn't it? I'll, send, I'll send you some pictures of where we are because you, we you love castle hunting when we went to Scotland and England. I mean, I love just visiting old castles. So yes, that's another thing. Like I collect uh, medieval English coins primarily, especially from the Elizabethan age, um, but even going back even further, Roman times. So 
Yeah. Yeah. You got to have other things that you do as well. It was that. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? The Roman coins, because it was the Roman coins that kind of was the end of their empire, wasn't it? You know, tagging, tagging current or tagging the value of goods away from gold, which unfortunately we seem to have done a few decades ago as well. So hopefully history won't repeat itself there, Paul. Let's hope, or at least I hope it takes a very long time. But yeah, no, I mean, um, yeah, it, it's just you coin collecting so much fun. I didn't know you collected coins. We'll have to chat. Yeah, no, absolutely. My um, my father was a very keen philatelist, so he's got ah, stamps is his thing. Yeah. He's got yeah. boxes and boxes of stamps. Anyway, we're digressing away. So talk to me about, last question, what's the, your biggest success in your time in the industry? My biggest success was realizing... It's probably, it's actually going to be interesting. I, I wasn't expecting that question. So I'd say my biggest success is recognizing that I didn't need to know everything. Um, and I know that sounds maybe cliche or not, but when, mm-hmm. once I hit the point of, I don't have to walk in a room and know everything. I got the imposter syndrome left me. I got more confidence with saying, I don't know. Um, you know, before I didn't feel like I could say, I don't know. Now I say it all the time and I don't feel like it diminishes me. Um, so once I once I learned that that was my biggest personal success, my um, biggest external success, right, was being able to, um, you know, help um, an organization achieve of just a nearly impossible goal. Um, I won't say it just because, but you know, it was it was yeah. a very tough goal that cost a lot of money, and you know, being able to to knock out things very simply when another group had failed was just that was that felt really good to me personally. Just helping to make something complex that failed before helping to solve it and fix it in a simple way where people are like, Oh, that, that wasn't that hard. That to me always feels like a great success. Yeah. I love, I love, um, I love both points. I think the first, the first one resonates the most where you, yeah. you know, you don't need to know everything and you can't no. be an expert on everything. Absolutely. And I think a, a true, a true leader is one, you know, who values the strength that he's got in his team around him. And that's the mistake I made when I had my own business, I was blinded by ego and arrogance and thought I could do everything myself which but you learn hard, hard lesson to learn but yeah but the fact that you're having the conversation now shows you have the ability to grow which i think you should walk away saying you know hey that's that's something i was able to grow from and i think it's going to make you far more successful because you had that experience well i think again it goes back to the start of the conversation on on what is success doesn't it i mean for me yeah. success for a long time was shiny stuff when really what success is is a mindset and it yeah. took me a long time to work that out. If I wake up every day content and happy and in a positive mind, that's success. Agreed. A hundred percent. I don't need the V8, although I do miss the sound of the V8, whoever that was in the chat. Sure, they're <laughs> fun. But it, you know, it, 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 if you have a poor base, all the money and the cool stuff only amplifies the badness. If you have it's- a good base... It, you know, the extra stuff just amplifies the good. You know so what? A, 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 very, a very wise man said that same statement to me four years ago. Money isn't the problem. Money's an amplifier, Simon, yeah. is what he said to me. And if you're in a bad place, having a lot of money is not necessarily a good, a good thing no, to have. Trap you. Yeah, it traps it you to the building where you don't feel like you can make a change. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. Does absolutely well. Look, um, there's me rambling again at the end there, but Paul, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. And everyone who's jumped in the chat again, you've blown me away with the amount of you've jumped in with the questions and the engagement. It really, really does mean a lot. And these these whole episodes are meant to be about sharing you know, our journeys, our best ideas and best practice. And I'm sure that you've all got lots out of this today. Final thing I will say, we are looking for a new sponsor. 
So massive thanks to Bramford for being our sponsor for the last two series. But if anyone out there is looking to support the community and would like to sponsor this amazing show, please, please do reach out to me. Paul, sales pitch done from my point of view. Any final words for the audience before we wrap things up? No, hey, thank you to everybody who joined and um, their insightful questions because I actually get a lot out of, um, you know, the questions that people ask. And I hope that I can help you. And, you know, but when you get into the field, help others, right? That's the best thing you can do. Absolutely. Paul, thanks ever so much. And make sure everyone you tune in next week. Is it the 15th? Yes. The podcast yes. is coming out. See, yes. I remember F-sides. 15th. Yep. The link's there, F-Sides podcast. Everyone, thanks so much, Paul. Look forward to speaking to you about coins very soon. Yes, thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.